This is the gift that he decided to give the American people. What the hell is going on? Wrong. Wrong. Drugs? Wrong. Healthcare? Wrong. A wall? Wrong. Republicans? Wrong. Democrats? Wrong. Wrong. They're not Wrong. sending their best. Wrong. Best, best, best. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location. From deep within the CSU headquarters, 3,800 miles southwest of Boris Johnson's Britain, this is Everybody's Wrong. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 14 of your not-always-weekly weekly breakdown of political news and current events from the perspective of liberty and logic. Again, if you are enjoying this podcast, like it, subscribe on whatever platform. We're pretty much everywhere now. But more importantly, share this with a friend. Or not a friend. Maybe if you know somebody who's just really stupid and could use some information in their life. We actually got a lot of feedback from last week's show. Some people very upset about the cop thing. I think we made it pretty clear that we have to assess the terrible things that some cops do. But it's not a broad, irrational hatred. But I get that some people can't grasp that concept. We also got a lot of people sending us clips and stories of other police issues. And they were great. And we appreciate it. I love all the DMs. God, there are just so many. I think we're going to have to find some sort of maybe regular segment or the occasional show where we just focus just on that because there were so many to talk about and they were great stories. Back in the early days of the Common Sense Underground website, we used to have a whole segment called System Failure, which was just brutal abuse of power. We may have to find a way to bring that back or reincorporate it in some way. There's not much to update on the UPS truck shootout from last week. I will tell you that a senior law enforcement source told CBS4 News that 19 different officers from five different agencies fired on the UPS truck, possibly more than 200 times. That's 200 bullets into a truck where you already know a hostage to be. They also identified the two dead pieces of shit that started the whole thing, but they're dead pieces of shit, so who cares? The Florida Department of Law Enforcement is asking the public for any and all videos of the incident as part of their investigation, but I doubt there will ever be any reliable closure to this story. I have very little faith in the police to conduct or release an honest conclusion, and honestly, even if they did, the media will have moved on to something else, especially with so many other flashy stories happening, like the Pensacola Naval Base shooting from last week. It's now being investigated as an act of terrorism. And the news loves shit like that. The shooter killed three people and wounded eight others. And, I mean, I get that that's a tragedy. I'm not saying that it's not. But the media gets bored easily. The fact that the shooter was a Saudi national and a member of the Royal Saudi Air Force. He was in the U.S. as part of a three-year foreign military sales program. Which is basically training we provide as a part of some arms deal to foreign governments. Then it gets better. It turns out the shooter posted a lot of anti-U.S. and anti-Israel stuff to social media, as well as quotes from Osama bin Laden. He even had a dinner party for some friends the day before where they all watched videos of mass shootings together. See, that's the only reason they're still talking about this story. This is the kind of thing the media loves to talk about. Cops killing innocent people and getting away with it? Yawn. Nobody cares. Honestly, though, while the story is a bit interesting, I think terrorism is a bit of a stretch. It's a very overused term anyway. It just seems like a guy that already didn't like America grew increasingly bitter. 
especially after one of his training officers nicknamed him Porn Stash in front of the whole class. But seriously, Google a picture of the guy. He's got a porn stash. And by that, I mean a, a mustache reminiscent of an old school porn star, not a stash of porn. You know, maybe the news could focus more on the fact that we're training foreign soldiers in a way that never goes well for us. Or the fact that the government is selling weapons like it's their job. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has suspended all operational training for about 900 Saudi students across the country. That's things like flight school and the like. They've limited them to things like language courses. That seems like a reasonable safety precaution, but they were in a classroom when the guy started shooting. One of the victims, uh, Joshua Watson, is being called a hero for escaping the classroom and alerting authorities to the situation, as well as the shooter's location and identity. He did so after being shot multiple times. His family is now calling for an end to the gun ban on military bases, saying that as a marksman, the situation may have played out much differently if he were allowed to have the means to defend himself. The Pensacola shooting was the second Navy shooting in only a few days. There was a sailor at a shipyard in Pearl Harbor who just opened fire on people. He killed two, wounded another. Still not totally sure why any of that happened. That story stuck around about as long as the UPS shootout. Let's move on to something slightly more positive. I was reading about this town. There's a small village, uh, Amelia, Ohio. It's got a population of about 5,000 people. And apparently, they really hate taxes. Basically, the story is the city council voted to impose a 1% tax on residents with no outside input. Most people didn't even know anything about it until they received a letter in the mail after it was all decided. I get that 1% doesn't really sound like much, but first off, all taxation is too much. Secondly, in a town with a median income of a little over $61,000, residents were paying about $1,400 in state income taxes, $780 in state sales tax, $130 in local sales tax, and about $3,300 in property taxes. And that's, of course, in addition to all the other ways the government likes to nickel and dime you to death. Residents were already upset at how their tax money was being spent. Now they get a letter in the mail telling them they're going to have to pay an average of $615 more every year. You have to start wondering where it ends. Most of us wish we could get rid of the layers of government intent on stealing our money but we mostly focus on the top layer. The people of Amelia came up with a different plan. After arguing with each other for so long over what to do and about how the village spends its taxes, they figured the easiest thing might be to just not have a town anymore. Yeah, they would rather dissolve their 119-year-old town than pay any more in taxes. In a bit of irony, one of the women leading the resistance against this new taxation ran against the incumbent mayor and won on the same day they voted to dissolve the town. So now the town will split in half and be under the jurisdiction of two neighboring townships, which will take over things like policing and, I guess, garbage pickup. The move seems a little extreme, and there are plenty of the people in the town that are a little sad for the ending of their once-was town. But I like that the whole town voted to take such a big step just to avoid paying some taxes. I think that's pretty awesome, personally. So many people are willing to put up with things they don't like just because it's easier to just take it. Sticking with the theme of uh, local governments fighting back, several counties in Virginia are vowing to resist the new gun control legislation that the new governor has promised will be coming. 
mostly through symbolic gestures. They are declaring themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries. So far, Stafford, Halifax, Spotsylvania, Allegheny, Carroll, Culpeper, Roanoke, and King George counties either have passed or are planning to pass similar measures. While many people doubt the resolution's chances of actually holding off any sort of statewide gun law, Culpeper Sheriff Scott Jenkins vowed to deputize county residents should the newly blue state legislature pass new gun control measures. And then, not to be outdone, Tazewell County, I assume that's how you say that, in Virginia, passed their Second Amendment sanctuary resolution, written with the help of attorneys with the expressed goal of having the option to not only defund any enforcement of gun control laws, but also to hire lawyers, file injunctions, and fight the new laws in state or federal court. And it gets better. Tazewell County even went further with the second resolution. It's generally understood that the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is tied in part to the necessity of a well-regulated militia. Well, the Constitution of Virginia isn't much different. From Article 1, Section 13 of the state constitution, that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. Therefore, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, seeing the obvious source for gun rights, Tazewell County said, fuck it, militia it is. The resolution would allocate money from the county budget to, in essence, form this well-funded and regulated militia. In practice, the money would go to things like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, JROTC programs, and various weapons training programs. The idea being, not only would this give better justification for citizens to own weapons, as they are the militia, but it gives the county authorization to call on this militia should it ever become necessary. Sometimes modern problems call for colonial solutions. When asked about counties passing these Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions, Governor Ralph Northam said, If we have constitutional laws on the books and law enforcement officers are not enforcing those laws on the books, then there are going to be some consequences, but I'll cross that bridge if and when we get to it. They can continue to have their meetings, they can continue to make sanctuary counties, but we're going to do what Virginians have asked us to do. One state representative, Jerry Connolly, told the Washington Examiner, quote, I would hope they either resign in good conscience because they cannot uphold the law which they are sworn to uphold, or they're prosecuted for failure to fulfill their oath. The law is the law. If that becomes the law, you don't have a choice. Not if you're a sworn officer of the law. First off, he should have said the word law a couple more times. And then Representative Donald McEachin had some other ideas, saying, quote, they certainly risk funding, because if the sheriff's department is not going to enforce the law, they're going to lose money. The county's attorney's offices are not going to have money to prosecute because their prosecutions are going to go down. And ultimately, I'm not the governor, but the governor may have to nationalize the National Guard to enforce the law. That's his call, because I don't know how serious these counties are and how severe the violations of law will be, but that's obviously an option he has. A quick side note, he's quoted as saying, nationalize the National Guard. I think he meant mobilize. Maybe he was misquoted, or maybe I'm wrong. It just seems like odd phrasing. Either way, apparently some Virginia Democrats are ready to fucking throw down over gun laws. Good luck to you, Virginia. And Virginia isn't the only place taking these precautionary measures. Several counties in Texas have passed their own versions of Second Amendment resolutions, bringing Texas's total number of sanctuary counties to 20. That seems like a lot of counties, unless you're in Texas. They have 254 counties which is in itself kind of a long story, but it was basically a way to keep governments local and more accountable to the people. These are all steps in the right direction, and it's great to see so many people vocal and supportive of Second Amendment protections. 
But as I said, these are mostly symbolic gestures. They're great for shaping public opinion or rallying people around your calls, but we need bigger, more effective solutions. Even if we could just get one area to just go all in, maybe other counties or states would follow. And if nothing else, that area would at least become a huge destination for ANCAPs. Personally, I would prefer Virginia because it's a little closer, but I like Texas too. On the subject of guns and Texas, uh, this past week a group known as Don't Comply held an event called Feed the Need. It was apparently the 7th annual Feed the Need, where they gathered to feed homeless and hand out necessities like blankets and coats and the like. Dallas has pretty strict guidelines for helping the homeless, especially feeding any more than 75 of them. It requires money and permits and all the other useless bullshit that stands between people just trying to help other people. Well, as you can gather from the name, the people of Don't Comply aren't known for their cooperation with pointless laws, so they do all of this sans permission. They are also big supporters of open carry and other gun rights, so they do that too. A bunch of people with pistols on their hips or AR slung over their shoulders just serving up good food to the people that need it the most. It's actually very interesting to see. They have videos of their events on various social medias. That's actually how I found out. Some say the open carrying is just a way to draw attention to another topic that needs discussed. Others claim it helps them not get hassled by the police during the event. I can't really say which is true, but I'm down with both. Helping the homeless is definitely something more people should be doing, and the number one thing keeping them from doing it is government interference. From requiring permits and then charging ridiculous fees to get them, to restricting what you can and can't do for them. A city passes an ordinance that says you can't give panhandlers money. Fine, you just give them food. Well, now that's against the law. The government feels the need to control everything. A group in Atlanta was shut down on Thanksgiving a year ago for feeding people. You've probably seen the 90-year-old man who was arrested in Florida multiple times for giving out food. And the one that pissed me off the most, Missouri Health Department officials poured bleach on food that was meant for the homeless because no one had a permit. How fucked up can you be to let human beings go hungry over a permit? That's some stage four terminal statism. So yeah, I'm not familiar with Don't Comply, but I support what they're doing. And if carrying weapons allows them to do it, then good on them for taking that extra step. You know, these all seem like fairly minor stories, but these are the things that should serve as an example. Whether you're a town that hates taxes or you just want to keep guns or feed the homeless, just stand up and fight for something. I'm tired of seeing everyone just lay down and deal with shit. Bit of a follow-up to the impeachment news from last week. Democrats announced two articles of impeachment against Trump. Neither was a surprise, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. The first was obviously abuse of power. He withheld aid and offered a head of state meeting with Zelensky, both on the condition of announcing an investigation into the Bidens, which we've established did happen, thus allegedly seeking to influence the 2020 elections. The second article is obstruction of Congress. Basically, Trump refused to participate in any way with the House investigation, but moreover, he ordered other agencies, offices, and officials to also refuse to comply. Again, that happened. Also, I'm a little surprised that there were only two, but I guess since none of this technically qualifies as a crime, per se, they didn't push for obstruction of justice, and there is a rumor that they could introduce more articles down the road. So, since the two things actually happened, the only question is, is it enough to vote for impeachment? The Judiciary Committee has now voted. The outcome is somewhat predictable. The Articles of Impeachment passed by a vote of 23 to 17, exactly as expected. Now it moves ahead to a full House vote, 
which again seems reasonably predictable. For frame of reference, the last time we went through this was back in 98, when Bill Clinton faced two articles. One for obstruction of justice, for interfering with the investigation into the affair with Monica Lewinsky, and two for perjury, because while he did participate, he lied his ass off, using the most obviously bullshit defense of technicality, with things like debating the meaning of the word is. Before that, the most famous example, Richard Nixon, faced three articles. Abuse of power, for spying, especially on his competition, shady money moves, and for the Watergate break-in. Obstruction of justice, for impeding the investigation into the Watergate break-in. And then contempt of Congress, for not turning over subpoenaed documents during the investigation, which sounds like Trump's obstruction of Congress. I'm not sure what the difference is, honestly. Republicans defend Trump's actions based mostly on the fact that the aid was released and no investigation into the Bidens was announced. And the lack of participation was because the Democrats weren't running an honest investigation. Whether that defense is as bullshit as it seems is mostly irrelevant. Because again, this will most likely just come down to party lines. So, all signs point to impeachment. Which still won't matter because... the Senate. Even if some Republicans change their minds, removal would require a two-thirds majority. Presuming all 100 senators vote, 20 Republicans would have to support removal. It just won't happen. But at the very least, this should all be over soon. The upside, at least as far as morbid curiosity goes, is that Mitch McConnell has said that there will be a trial. Democrats had presumed, feared, or both, that the Republican Senate would immediately vote to acquit Trump without taking the time to try him. So that might actually be interesting. The Democrats have spent the last several weeks investigating and building a case against Trump. They have taken every opportunity to make it very clear that Trump is a threat and he's terrible and they will do anything and everything to get rid of what one totally not overdramatic blogger called the biggest threat America has faced since the Civil War. Democrats have been pretty open and honest about their distaste for Trump and for obvious reasons. What isn't so obvious, at least to me, is why in the midst of everything else, and not just on the same day, but within an hour of deciding to move ahead with impeachment, they handed Trump a huge win. The LA Times called it his biggest legislative win of the year. House Democrats and the Trump administration finally reached a deal that would clear the way for the passing of the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Basically, it's the new NAFTA. It's been on a long road, and Pelosi chooses that moment to announce it. An hour after you dropped two articles of impeachment. Weird. Pelosi does claim that they made it infinitely better than the one originally proposed, but Trump still gets the credit whether he deserves it or not. Pelosi defended the timing, saying, quote, Why wouldn't we? This is the right thing to do for our trade situation and our workers. And then Trump tweeted, It will be the best, most important trade deal ever made by the USA. Good for everybody. Farmers, manufacturers, energy, unions, Tremendous support. Importantly, we will finally end our country's worst trade deal, NAFTA. While most people agree that the timing of the announcement was politically motivated, most people are a little confused about what the motivation is. Even a lot of Democrats are unhappy with Pelosi for handing Trump this win in what should have been their moment. Some people speculate it's to give a little bit of cover for the Democrats running for re-election in swing states. But whatever the reason, a lot of their supporters just aren't happy with it. And this isn't the only such win for Trump. Trump's mini trade deal with Japan from earlier this year has passed their parliament. Now the USMCA is on track. And it's looking like we're about to reach a new trade agreement with China. Given that the economy is the main thing Trump has to stand on, these are important victories for him. 
They come at a very strange time for Democrats in the impeachment process, but overall it gives him a lot to work with. Then, in an only slightly more surprising development, came the National Defense Authorization Act. And while there is so much to dislike about the $738 billion entity, it also became my favorite thing to happen this week. If only because of sheer ridiculousness. The NDAA passed the House with strong bipartisan support. It won 377 to 48. And when it goes to the Senate next week, it's expected to do just as well. Just like the USMCA, Democrats and Trump both claim it as a W. House Armed Services Chairman Adam Smith called the legislation the most progressive defense bill in the history of the country. But the bill is missing several things that Democrats had pushed for. The NDAA does not include limits on funding for Trump's border wall. It does not overturn the transgender troop ban. And it does nothing to withdraw U.S. support in Yemen's civil war. And those are just a few. There's a long list. But it does contain a repeal of the military's widow tax, which is an offset of survivor benefits. And it's just as messed up as it sounds. So that's a good part. The bill also gives 12 weeks of parental leave for all federal employees. That is noted as a win for Ivanka. And it grants a 3.1% pay raise for the troops. But the best part is that the bill also officially creates Space Force. It will now be the sixth branch of the armed services under the Air Force. And I know that there have been several announcements and proclamations and changes already this year. But it's like now it's an official thing. Restructuring is about to begin. Funding for a Space Force operational headquarters, most likely in Colorado, is going to move forward. I guess I just always thought that, especially with everything else going on, that this would just kind of, you know, set on the back burner and then somebody else would come in and, and either undo it or at least just not talk about it and forget it ever happened. At least currently, there will be no new hiring for Space Force. Instead, they're going to transfer personnel from the Air Force and they are redesignating the Air Force Space Command as U.S. Space Force. The agreement also creates a chief of space operations that will report to the Secretary of Air Force and become a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The NDAA also creates a Senate-confirmed Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration. As the senior space architect, the position will, quote, provide a renewed focus on the acquisition of space systems and will chair a Space Force Acquisition Council to ensure integration across the national security space enterprise. You know, the eventual evolution toward space as a frontier of defense is not completely ridiculous. It's something that a lot of people have kind of presumed would happen. But the fact that the bureaucracy involved can only talk about it like it's an old 60s sci-fi movie, space architects overseeing the space acquisition of space systems, the whole thing just seems very ludicrous. But at the end of the day, even while wading through such a huge pile of shit, Trump managed to have a successful week. What the fuck? I want to take a few minutes and talk about the future of the OG parties. Not really OG, historically speaking, but really old. So old and so accepted that just about everyone mindlessly presumes that you and your ideology will fit neatly into one side. But I've been wondering for a long time, will it always be that way? 
Every year, a larger segment of the population identifies as independent or unaffiliated. The modern political parties as we know them are in the process of some drastic changes. How they survive, or if, I guess I should say, is a big question. The Democrat Party, consumed with identity politics, is having a tough time reconciling its older, more experienced leadership with its increasingly radical base. From newcomers like AOC sparring with Nancy Pelosi to resentment over the lack of diversity in the 2020 presidential candidates, the progressive party is not nearly progressive enough for many people. Many Democrats are pushing farther to the left to please the loudest voices among them, only to find that new ideas fail to become reality because too many people still don't want that. The Republicans have no idea who or what they want to be. They've compromised pretty much everything they used to stand for in one way or another over the last 20 years. 2016 was the best evidence of that. Oh, 2016. Such a simpler time, but not really. While problems go back much, much further, around mid-2016 is when I really started to contemplate the future of the two parties. The crop of Republican candidates were very similar to the 2020 Democrats in that they were all fairly bland imitations of one another. Part of the reason Trump did so well was because he had the most personality on the stage. But even still, Trump becoming the nominee was a bit of a surprise, and obviously no one expected him to ever win the election. After every big election, each side has to go through a kind of post-mortem and figure out what worked and what didn't, what went wrong, and how to course correct for next time. So early on, I had wondered what they would do. I had thought if there was to be any upside to Clinton winning, it would be a greater chance that the Republicans would realize that they were a total dumpster fire and maybe get their shit together. And a quick side note for all those about to tune out before I get to my point. No, I still don't support either party. The whole plan is to get to a free society with little to no government at all. But in the meantime, it would be nice if the two parties that are currently running things tried to be a little less awful. Every time I've told this story, somebody pipes up with, well, if you're not a Republican, then why do you care what they do? Because I still have to coexist with these people, at least for now. I had also hoped, but not expected, the Bernie bros to see the reality of their situation. Regardless of what you think about Sanders and his policies, everybody can pretty much agree that he got seriously fucked over by his own party, no less. In one of the most brazen, out-in-the-open displays of political shadiness, the Democrat establishment took that shit and handed it to Hillary. So the secondary hope there was that they would kind of revolt against their own party and either force some sort of substantial change, or as many of them did, migrate to a third party. So, best case scenario, the chaos that was the 2016 election leads toward two parties changing their fundamentals and opening the door for something better. Obviously, pretty much none of that happened. While Bernie's people accepted that they were stabbed in the back, they didn't do much about it, except stay home on election day. Democrats as a whole tried their best to avoid the fact of why they lost, choosing instead to blame things like Russia and Facebook memes. The Republicans won, but they were still broken. Even in the beginning, it was hard for them to come together given all the shit they talked during the campaign. Throughout the Trump presidency, a large part of the GOP has disliked Trump or what he was doing, or both. But given the constant onslaught by the Democrats, they couldn't be too vocal about it without looking like disloyal opportunists. That's how parties work. You can't have your own opinion. You have to be a team player. It's ridiculous. So even though 2016 turned out differently than I expected, and it didn't lead to any of the changes I'd hoped for, but are the Republicans in any better position just because they won? No, they're really not. Even if Trump wins re-election, big if, 
the GOP is still on its way out. I'm not saying it will happen as soon as you might think, but it will happen. And this is really why I wanted to talk about this this week, because either party dying is good news for people like us. And it could have just as easily been the Democrats going first, but what they have going for them is that most of their party agree on the direction they're heading. They all want the country to move drastically to the left. They just can't agree on how far or how fast. Some want total socialism right this second. Some want to ease into it. Some of them are still capitalists. They just want the government to have more control over everything. Even in their more flawed areas, people are still buying into it. Most of those people will ride that train until it reaches its inevitable conclusion, careening over the cliff and exploding into a fiery ball of wreckage and mayhem which none will survive. The Republicans, on the other hand, can't even make it that far. The GOP as a party has become completely unhinged when it comes to what used to be their core beliefs. Fiscal responsibility? Not anymore. Historically, you can debate how responsible they may or may not have been, but since 2003 and the war on terror, Republican spending has just gone crazy. So logically, their stance for small government is also out the window. How about guns and Second Amendment rights? Good luck with that. More and more of them are pushing for weapons bans, magazine restrictions, and even red flag laws. Some Republicans like Dan Crenshaw, he's a representative from Texas of all places, guy with the eye patch, you've probably seen him. He asked supporters not to jump to conclusions until you've seen their red flag law plans. Because... They'll be fucking better, I guess. Then there are issues they've stuck to either too much or for too long. Weed legalization is a big one. Most people have come around to the idea, but politicians still aren't feeling it. To them, it's better to seem moral and tough on crime, while most of their supporters are at home smoking a joint wishing they'd ease the hell up. The environment is another area slowly pushing people away. Most Republican voters aren't big into climate change, so the overall stance there isn't a big deal but more of them are starting to appreciate the importance of environment as a whole, or at least don't understand why you want to show just how much you disbelieve climate change by purposefully polluting more. The hell kind of sense does that make? You cannot buy into every aspect of climate alarmism and still not want things like oil spills and chemical waste dumped in rivers. Also, talking in the ballpark of science, if you're pro-life and you want to pass pro-life laws... Maybe you should learn basic biology first. Watching a politician try to pass a law without understanding how the human body actually works is weird. It's a very bizarre thing watching a grown man who like never had a health class. I don't know. The overall point here is that there are too many viewpoints in one already directionless party. Voter turnout is a growing issue and third parties, like the libertarians, are constantly siphoning off free thinkers from both Democrats and Republicans eventually something's going to give. Maybe a group like the Libertarian Party, which also suffers from its own big tent syndrome, but it's already established and on the ballot in 50 states, will eventually grow to the point of becoming a mainstream alternative and eventually overtake the GOP. Or maybe the Republicans slowly implode, losing more and more while the Democrats take control of all branches of government. And while such a move would initially make Democrat voters very happy, we all know that one party controlling everything would quickly go very, very wrong. Eventually, people will want an organized party to turn to. Who that will be remains to be seen. Maybe it'll be one new party, or maybe it will be several short-lived parties sprouting up to serve a purpose and then dying off a few years later, like the Know-Nothings or the Free Soil Party, or even the Whigs. While clearly the most successful third party in national politics, they didn't quite stick around, did they? 
They served a purpose, and then they couldn't all agree on enough other issues in a time when the country was rapidly changing, so they split and went their separate ways. Sounds a little familiar there. Either way, this is a huge opportunity for liberty-minded people like ourselves. This is the beginning of the end for the two-party system as we know it. Maybe we organize ourselves, reconciling our slight differences and working together to find logical solutions to issues. Maybe we reach out to the almost half of eligible voters that just stayed home in 2016. We show them a better alternative and we find a way to steer things back toward a more free society. Or we just wait for it to all fall apart on its own and we build a better life afterwards. Which, I'll be honest with you, I'm increasingly okay with. My only problem is the waiting. And I don't want to sit around doing nothing and leave the task of fixing this bullshit to our kids or our kids' kids. So I think we should work together now. Either fix it or burn it all down. But we need to do something in the short term, is all I'm saying. And I think the slow death of the Republican Party is our best opportunity to do it now. All right, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week. Not sure exactly what we're going to talk about next week, but I think I might get into this porn debate that's going on. Pro or con, what's the freedom position? That pun was unintended, but welcomed. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us at the Common Sense Underground on Facebook. I am the B Parsons on Twitter. Other than that, I'll see you next week. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.